Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone. If you want to support us, please go to our patreon.com forward slash game dev unchained. Any love would be appreciated. Also, if you want to just have a chat with other listeners, please join us in our Discord channel, available on our main website, www.gamedevunchained.com. As you're listening to this week's episode, please go over to our proud partners, 80.lv. They have awesome articles such as quick environment sketches for games. Hamza Atme did an overview of the techniques and tools he used to build this simple but really nice-looking architectural piece. Also, there's a Dying Star visual effects production in Unreal Engine 4. Vidas Rumkevicius gave some tips on how to build a very pretty space-themed visual effects. The whole effect is made up of 13 emitters, all within a single particle system. It runs at a full 120 frames per second. There are roughly 650,000 particles alive. Lastly, there's an article about Paragon Character Texturing Pipeline, where Epic Games decided to share productive sessions from Unreal Dev Day in Montreal with the entire Unreal development community with their game, Paragon. All right, let's get into this week's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, yes, and boys and girls as well, this is the Game Dev Unchained podcast. That is the number one podcast for the game development lifestyle and stories from game developers. I am Larry Charles, one half of the podcast team responsible for this weekly audio goodness that you get every Tuesday morning. The other person special request the very first person to be on tom's friends list this is mr brandon fam tom and i go way back what's up guys this is brandon fam please welcome our two special guests this week matthew viglione and then robert see i told you i'm gonna mess up (laughs) there we go oh that's that's a that's an assist right there that's an assist (laughs) what's up guys how are you Good morning. Good, good. Good morning. Yes. Good morning, everyone. Yeah. Thanks for joining us from Poland. Uh, And uh, we uh, are at a point of the podcast where we kind of ask you guys, you know, what's your background, a little bit of your resume to kind of introduce yourselves to our listeners. Tell us why Um, you're cool. I'm Matt. I'm one half of Soma Sim um, and Rob's other half, and he'll tell you about himself in a minute. Um, We started the (laughs) studio about... Four years ago now, I guess, in 2013, um, we love simulation games. We wanted to make more simulation games, and so that's what we decided to do. Uh, before I went into making games, I was a communications director at a large nonprofit in San Francisco. Um, I was sort of a creative director, did like graphic design, video production, all kinds of media relations and stuff like that. Um, and I decided I didn't want to do any of that anymore ever again. So I joined with Rob and we decided to go in to make video games. And yeah, so we moved to Chicago about a year later, moved home to Chicago and um, I've been working on our first game. It was called 1849. 
out in 2013. And our second game, Project High Rise, it came out in 2014. Um, Project High Rise came out in September of 2016, so about a year ago. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I'm Rob. Um, so my, my background is, uh, I guess, a little bit more traditional game dev. So I've been, uh, I went to school and you know did a bunch of game dev work uh, in school. I've been working in the industry since 2005. Uh, I was at EA. I was at uh, after EA. I, did, I worked at a, a small startup called uh, Three Rings, which was making casual mo casual MMO. Awesome. After that, I went to Zynga. I worked at Zynga for a few years, and then uh, I was ready to move on. And at that point, I think we have been talking with Matt about making uh like strategy simulation games for a few years mm -hmm. so we were just like all right let's let's do this <laughs> it was 2013 the indie thing was hot everybody was <laughs> making indie games so why not yeah so that's 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 the backstory i guess yeah so uh, you know we came across your gdc talk on making a game for a year so larry and i have talked to many people about this and it seems like the trick to it is aiming to make a game in six months and then ending it up <laughs> in a year like so uh we would wa want to talk to you guys you know from the very beginning uh of that uh what was the idea behind it do you guys um was uh had a clear goal of doing that uh and, and achieving that particular goal yeah i mean to be completely transparent when we first started making games the game that we wanted to make first was project high rise which is the game we made second because mm -hmm. we looked at project high rise and went let's see that's that's a that's not a game that we make in a year it's a game that's mm -hmm. going to take longer than a year um and we also had the idea for 1849 kicking around in our heads too, um, just from a lot of trips up to Gold Country in Northern California, just thinking there's a game out there somewhere. Um, and so, yeah, we looked at 1849 and realized that that was something that we could do more reasonably in about a year. Um, cause at that point, a year was sort of like either make this thing in a year and it works or we do something else. Um, that's sort of like the hard yeah, right, financial barrier that we had. Yeah, because it's the whole thing of like you, you quit your job and you, uh, you know, you work in your indie game and, and you realize, oh, well, you know, paying out of my savings for, for all my living costs and everything. <laughs> I'm not going to get any money for a while. So, yeah, we, uh, it was sort of our cap. Like, I think we had. We would be able to push it on for like a year and a half, maybe two, if, if need be. But we're like, all right, let's 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 aim to get something out in a year, uh, make something that would make sense that's going to be good, but you know, constrained by the time. Um, mm -hmm. And then that's going to be a stepping stone for the next thing, which was the thing we really wanted. To make. Yeah, mm -hmm. it, it was so. It's like you said, we were afraid. You know, if we're planning for a year, we really should have be able to make it for two years because you know game dev um yeah <laughs> so. <laughs> because <reasons. laughs> yeah. so really it was well, just a matter of, of us like just honestly looking at our plan and saying that would be something that would be really cool to do we can't do mm -hmm. that we can't afford it so that particular puppy has to go away now <laughs> yeah go go live on a farm somewhere and we'll... <laughs> um actually you know, it... <laughs> 
in my eyes though that's like the rite of passage i say for kind of going indie is when you realize you're like okay you know what actually now that i'm here and now that i'm actually looking at it we can't do this we can't do this we can't do this so we're gonna make this those are the ones that i'm like okay they're gonna they're gonna make it you know because they can (laughs) they can make those tough decisions even before the work starts and that's that's one of the key differences i would say I look forward to in seeing indie developers that I think are going to make it or do really well is like before they even begin the work, they can tell that X amount of work is going to be too much. Uh, a lot of people don't do that and that's why they fail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and, and, and I think, I think it just comes up, just comes from, comes from experience, right? Cause it's uh, yeah. something that you learn, uh, you know, whether it's a game dev job or some other, you know, creative job or whatever, it's something you just have to learn over time. Like, yes, I, I, Want to do all these things, but I can't. <laughs> I, had a, I had a boss once ask me if for a video project that we were working on for a nonprofit that I worked for, if we could set up and do a time lapse film of the sun setting over the Golden Gate Bridge. Mm-hmm. I was like, there are so many problems with that. Like, are you going to pay a cameraman to be there all night? <laughs> you aware that the sun almost never visible from that bridge, um, and so it was just like. Just the ability to look at something and go, that's that's just silliness, um, and cut it. I think, you know, like Rob said, it just comes from experience. But yeah, it would have so looked you, pretty. But. <laughs> so you guys were mentioning that uh, you, you began the conversation years before you guys actually did it um, in 2013, right? Yeah. Right? 14, okay. So... Uh, what was going on within those talks? Was it just like, you want to do this? You want to, what kind of game would you like to make? Uh, when do you want to do this? Like, what was the evolution of that conversation? Um, so we, uh, like I mentioned before, uh, the, the high rise, high rise was kind of the game we wanted to make. So we, um, we're just sort of, you know, we're, we're all time simulation game. Play, like mm-hmm. all the Maxis games and, all the civilizations back to civilization one, a bunch of sort of random grognardy titles that nobody remembers. Uh, and it's, it's some some of those titles stick with you, right? Mm-hmm. You go back, you go through the GOG, uh, good old games, uh, sort of uh, back catalog, and you're like, oh, I remember this. Let's let's play this. And, um, and at some point, uh, especially back in 2000, even before 13, like 2012, 2011, mm-hmm. this was the time before the, the huge flood of, of games that we're seeing right now. Uh, so you would have those indie games, but they w- they tended to be sort of more action-oriented, right? Action games, platforming games, uh, the, that kind of stuff. Um, and you didn't see a lot of these sort of uh, strategy kind of, uh, and especially simulation games. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a pain to make. Oh, they're, they're <laughs> such a pain to make. Um, yeah, we can talk about that later. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, so we were sort of looking at it from the perspective of there, the games we want to play, they're not out there. And we know there are more people like us out there because there's, you know, the when something does show up, whether it's Spore or The Sims or Sim City or something like that, it, all these, you know, it, it generates so much interest, so much attention. Uh, all all of the players who are like us are out there and they're not uh, they're not getting the games that they want. So we sort of looked at it and went, well, we kind of know how to make things. Um, <laughs> we could give it a try. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, we, we, we get this. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah we're, it was like Sim Tower. Like we put, we both sort of come, came back to Sim Tower being like a sort of like primordial spark for us for video games back in like 1993, 94. Like just spending hours and hours playing that game and like Man, just wanting Sim to get Tower. Sim Tower is a classic. It is a beaut. It was so much fun. And all of my hotels had roaches. No matter what I did, no matter what I did with the elevators, I couldn't get rid of the roaches. <laughs> oh yeah, we, we we went back and replayed Sim Tower, and, and uh, it was it was funny, right? Because like the, you you play it, and and all the nostalgia like comes right back, right? Like you remember yourself being a kid and playing this, and you remember like what computer you played it on, and the the, the CRT. A uh, tube, right? And it was like this clunky 386, whatever. And you're like, oh, but this was great. And then you actually start playing it, and you're like, oh, wait, the uh, the elevators are terrible, right? I can't <laughs> make them work. <laughs> oh man, it's, it's funny, I'm looking right? to see if I can find some tower again. No, okay. <laughs> so when it comes to scheduling, uh. You know, there's always like that harsh reality we're talking about. Even as a professional, you know, there are just some things you haven't planned for. And uh, even with a gaming background in, uh, you know, traditional companies or whatever, you're still coming out at fresh because this is your first time doing indie, right? Yeah. Um, did Did you guys uh, start out with just two or uh, are you still two? Or how big of the team size are we talking about here? Uh, the two of us are sort of the company, quote unquote, like we're the one, Rob's the, um, does all the tech, I do all of the game design and all of the like art direction and management. Mm -hmm. um, at this point, we have another artist with us who is essentially full-time with us pretty much, like he doesn't, he doesn't work with anyone else. Um, mm -hmm. and we're lucky enough to be able to keep him busy most of the time now. Um, and then we have another artist that we work with who helps us with UI and um, with, when we work on games that aren't on PC, like on mobile, he has a much better sense of that sort of world because I don't play mobile games, so it's good to have him around. So yeah, I think at this point, it's pretty safe to say that we're about four full-time or mostly full, three and a half. Yeah. Um, yeah, we like to keep it sort of small and manageable. Um, yeah. And we set up our whole team sort of based on like a rev share model. Mm. So everybody's sort of in it with us. So... Right, like if, if the if the game does well, then everybody, yeah, everybody wins. <laughs> that's, that's that's the model I believe in right there. You don't have to worry about people slacking because it's there's <laughs> a small team. But then at the end, they don't have to worry about reciprocity because yeah. you told them up front what the deal was going to be. Yeah. yeah, and and the sort of the idea, like you know, uh, in music or maybe in a little bit in film, there's. There's the idea that the artist's gonna get a little bit of residuals, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To, to keep doing this more and more. And it's like, this is the model we want to see in games, right? We, yeah. There's not enough of that. Uh, people will, uh, you know, at the big companies, we uh, have these large teams uh, where there's a lot of people contributing to the game. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're, they're getting a salary and stuff. But after the game ships, uh, maybe it becomes a big success, maybe not. Mm -hmm. Only very few companies actually let the developers who made the game participate in the uh, in the success of the game after it ships. Right? And that's, that's 
You want to see more of that? It's baloney to me because what the way I look at it, the argument that I hear from the top more often, whenever I throw this question out to some of the higher level people that I hang out with, they'll say, well, one of the worries or concerns is that you're just going to lose your team because they will retire. They have the money that they need to change their immediate situation. And some of the people who are great workers may be disgruntled and you don't know. So that money is like a golden ticket for them to leave. I'm like... That's a terrible argument. <laughs> I, I just made an incredible amount of money that no other job has ever been able to give me. The next mm-hmm. thing I'm going to do is like leave that job right away. It's like, uh, I probably would want to stick it out, you know, like do it a couple more yeah. times. No, no, I'll probably totally leave. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally leaving because most companies do think like that, right? It's like, that's the problem. So yeah. as soon as you strike gold, you should get, the f out but uh, <laughs> it's, it's not as bad as the old the bad old days of like the luke starts model where we made a game you're all laid off oh, yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah i mean but the, there's what, that <laughs> right <laughs> yeah and what the rapture says it's like it's it's also i mean if, if you have people who are so disgruntled that they would leave them the, the first moment they can is that a different dynamic right like yeah. why, <laughs> why not just change things around so the people don't want <laughs> yeah seriously if they were going to leave anyway it's you know yeah just let them leave <laughs> just let me go I'm sure Spielberg has never had the problem with like you know, the cinematographer like he made a lot of money and I'm never going to work with you again it's like that's not how that yeah. that's not how this works that's the thing right it, 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 it's not yeah <laughs> alright so then let's rephrase the constraints if I liked the company and the executive yeah. team <laughs> and we yeah. did very well and they had rev share retirement yeah. plan, like I'm staying until right. there's no more opportunity. Yeah. If it's a fun job and you know, you get, there's mutual respect, of course you'll stay uh, out of the creative uh, opportunities, basically, you know, financially you're good, but um you know, if you if the team was together and was successful, obviously to that point where you're like super rich, mm-hmm. then uh, naturally you would. And, and you know, even, in the game industry, yeah, it's a little tougher. I think because well, most people don't think like that. You know? Yeah, and even even you know the the sort of uh, super rich thing is is very much an exception. But even you know even if a game does well, you know it's it's not. Uh, it's not a triple A spectacular, but it still, you know, does does okay. It would yeah. to have people participate in, in the uh, fruit of the labor they put into it. Mm-hmm. Also, yeah, if you, yeah. have, you have that in from the beginning, I think it reframes the investment people put on the work that they do too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, because it's like, all right, this is this is mine now, right? I'm I'm not working on just something that somebody told me to do. Right. This is my thing. <laughs> and what's what's interesting is I bet the amount of money that it would take to just make the entire team unquestionably happy is probably not a huge, very even noticeable chunk taken away from what the top retains whenever a product does mega success. Right? Like yeah. if you were to take a team of thirty yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, we'll give you guys an extra three million dollars. Everyone on that team's like, yes, like excited. <laughs> Even though the parent company is po- is pocketing 70, 80, 90 million dollars per executive kind of thing. Right. Yeah, they, they, they make that in one hour during a Steam sale. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, so let's shift this podcast into how to replicate Steam because that seems. <laughs> <laughs> how to out Steam? That's a whole different conversation. We'll bring it back to you guys. Sorry about that, Tane. <laughs> yeah. So what when it comes to scheduling, like a lot of the stuff that you guys were talking about, um, are, are recipes for success, right? So obviously, you guys are finally working on the dream game that you guys wanted to make right um and i i feel like most indie titles or indie companies um that don't work out usually only plan for that one game uh it's, it's, it's either hit or not and if it's not if we it, it didn't turn out the way we wanted it to be so time to go back to our old jobs uh which is very uh unfortunate because I, I feel like a lot of that it's too early um you're it's a learning process as we all know right um oh, it's very rare for your first any to be like explosively awesome it's it's a process like you're starting over again it's a skill set because you guys are all taking on jobs that you've never done before and you're learning as you're going right so um so even as a professional even you guys had like um awesome jobs before when it comes to scheduling planning you know how much was it from uh, experience and being precise versus gut feeling and you know what was the reality of that uh, process for your first title I mean it was sort of a mixture of both of those things of experience and just got reaction like we did we, we do something that we stole from I think it was one of Rob's co-workers from Microsoft uh, they call it swag scheduling, which is mm-hmm. usually wild best guess. Um, you sort of like <laughs> look at something and go, eh, that's a week. All right. And then, all right, no, wait, maybe it's a week and a half. No, it's a week. No, it's a week and a half. And then you sort of settle on the number. Mm-hmm. And then you put that on like a, a spreadsheet. So, you know, you look at it and say, scenario design. Eh, two weeks. Or like, um, <laughs> and it's funny because it's, uh, it's, 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 it's start out by just chopping the entire game that you have in mind into smaller bits, but they can be too small because once you, once you do the, once you get into the weeds, then you lose this this sort of the, the flexibility of it. You sort of chop, chop it up into like week or two week or three week sized chunks, like one or two weeks is ideal. Um, and you you know so you take your vision, you chop it up into little bits. Uh, you take each bit annotated with how much you think it's gonna take, and you pad the heck out of it. Right? <laughs> uh, like, because there's gonna be so many unknowns, and you don't know how to make how to do this. Like, uh, you know, we had like this achievement line items. Like, I've never implemented achievements uh, a week. Right? <laughs> 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 and, and, and sometimes it works out, and sometimes uh, it happens faster, sometimes it happens slower, and it sort of all kind of averages out. And, and you add like, you know, here's a week buffer. And here's another uh, week long buffer, uh, you know, like this and that. And, and you sort of take all these cards and you and you lay them out on, on the calendar, and, and you see sort of like, let's see if it runs over. <laughs> and it yeah, it did. I mean, we sort of in our original plan, like, oh, that's about eleven months, and it was more like fourteen yeah. or forty-nine. And mm-hmm. we also had multiplayer. We, also, we had this we had this idea for a lovely multiplayer system for that game, like. I really liked it. And then we looked at all of the cards that we had built for the multiplayer system and like, that's like six months of work probably. And that's without any buffering or anything like that. And so we were just decided, well, 
that's not going to make it. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I was all those past tense words you guys are using. We had, we, we loved. Amazing <laughs> <laughs> ideas. I think uh, what like what what you guys are doing to laying down the cards physically helps. Uh, yeah, kind of just seeing the amount of work uh, versus just you know digitally you get some sense of it if you do it on the computer and stuff, but then just having it laid out on the table, uh, I I think it gives you a, a better grasp of how much work is actually necessary. Just seeing a bunch like but my whole room is filled with this one task. <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe I mean, we should not do this. <laughs> yeah, but, I don't have enough room. <laughs> right. and, and you see, like, you know, October cars, November cars, December cars. And you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. March, and there's still cards. We have the release date in March, and there are cards that go on. Yeah. <laughs> We're blowing half our budget on index cards. I don't think we can afford any more cards. <laughs> Yeah, it's a very important part of the indie process. <laughs> That's actually a pretty cool little system, though. Like, if you can, and I'm not saying that you guys do it this way, but just hearing the talk, if I can say on this card, I'm going to write down everything I can do, like in the day, or like these are one day tasks, and just kind of lay them out, you quickly will see, like, oh shit, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like it shows you immediately that yeah. uh, that your uh, ideas are are bigger than than the budget we have. Yeah, absolutely. Like people only remember you for so long too. Like you had a game that was that okay. You don't get something out soon. You have to sort of sort of reintroduce yourself all over again. Like mm-hmm. not just the money budget. It's like the the whole business cycle that you sort of, sort of have to plan for and deal with. So here's here's what I want to know. As uh, the one half of the game design audience or hosting of this podcast, <laughs> uh, I'd like to know, I know that you can't look at the skeleton and just say like, oh, wow, you know, this is going to take longer than we have and you make those cuts. But what about when you decide to actually do something and then you still may find out that you overscoped or it needs a redesign or something like that? What were some of your uh, experiences when you committed to doing work that you thought was going to be on time or do well and then had to kind of course correct? That's a good one. Um, trying to think of a couple of, of an example or two from either High Rise or 1849. Um, I think with... Um, That's a good question. Um, Luckily, we did hey. a lot of these kinds of things. Uh, I think mainly because we just padded our schedule a lot, uh, so we were able to start these kinds of changes. Um, but the uh, I'm trying to remember because uh, I think in both cases, in both 1849 and, and high rise, we did actually go a little bit over our desired schedule. Yeah. I think so. What ended up happening is I think 1849 was supposed to release a couple months before it did. So we, I think we ran over maybe a, a month a month or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then High Rise released in September. And we initially thought it would release in May. Mm-hmm. But we, we just decided to, to schedule things around uh, trade shows and, and conferences and so on. So and also, uh, it, it just gave us and more And also, time. I think that from the design point of view, what really starts to happen is toward the end of a game like you get to that point where it's 80 percent done and there's like 80 percent more to do yes um <laughs> and when you start putting like what you think is your done game like oh we're just gonna polish a few things up and then ship it in front of players especially with simulation games that are so systems heavy and dependent on ui 
if you start putting it in front of players and you think it's clear and everything is fine and then they sit down in front of it and like just stare at the mouse for two minutes and like don't know they don't know what to do they don't know where to click yeah um like that first time you put your game that you think is almost done in front of like a a kleenex tester who's never seen the game before who has no experience with it and they just do something completely and totally random and strange that's in our experience where we've started to run into a lot of these overruns like my design is fine everybody will love it and then <laughs> it's confusing it's opaque nobody knows what to do with it and then you have to start like redesigning things yeah, like, oh, yeah wow. that's true that's a good example for project high rise we had um we had this idea of three pillars there would be commercial office real estate there would be residential real estate and there would be hotels which if you played sim tower should sound yeah. sort of familiar um mm. and we started building it we started designing it we get about mm, probably a third of the way through the development of the game and i haven't started thinking about the hotel's design at all like implementing it, doing anything with it. Like the artist had started making a few assets and stuff for it because I had it in the art design plan thinking, oh, this will be great. We'll just keep working on it. And, and mind you, hotels were on the schedule. They were on the cards and like in, in theory, they'll fit. <laughs> and then it didn't. <laughs> and then it did that at all. <laughs> so basically what we, we had to have a hard conversation with. For me as a designer, like in order for this game to be complete, like they need to be there. Like. So they became our first DLC. Yeah. Just being able to like have a, con a concise, discrete chunk like that that we can just like hack off and say, I'll come back to you later. Yeah. Which like, is nice in modern games. You can sort of like keep releasing things. Yeah. The, uh, but uh, so to sort of uh, go all the way back to your original question, how do we deal with sort of, uh, time overruns and stuff like that? I mean, in both cases, I think we've just cut. <laughs> I mean, we, we we pushed out the release date a little bit for this and for that, but I mean, in the end, you can either just keep pushing the release date out, which we don't want to do, mm -hmm. or the other thing is you can cut things. I mean, the the third the third option is of course like you know try to work more or bring in more people. But I mean, bringing more people never never works well, uh, not that late in the um, and then just working more. It's like we need to have a sustainable thing. We can't crunch on this for a long time and then it's not like the work's gonna finish when you release where right? you release the game and then a whole lot more work just gets piled on top of what you were doing um you know you release you do your release in steam or another online store and you have patches and you have extra content that you want to push out and you have uh things that you wanted to change that you didn't have time for and your community will give you ideas uh that are usually great ideas mm -hmm. but they still take time so right so it's like we were looking at from the perspective of we're not gonna crush i mean like just mm -hmm. period we're, we're not going to do that because we know there's more work after shit um so what can we do <laughs> cut things <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, like, when you guys are starting out, um, you know, obviously years of building that relation between just the two of you guys and then finally making the leap. Um, so how, how did you guys deal with, obviously, when you're starting to bring on more people, uh, contract work in particular? Um, um, I, I don't know if you guys had experience with contractors before, personally, but those are the few things where, like... It, it's quite it's quite new territory for a lot of uh, business 
people? Uh, luckily, as a creative director for about 10 years, I had lots and lots and lots of experience with contractors from photographers to videographers to web designers and writers and consultants of various types. So um, like I was probably hiring a contractor every couple of months to do various things for a long time. So, you know, I can write a work for hire contract, you know, while I'm half asleep. Um, so I, that was uh, just a lucky bonus that we had that I sort of have working with contractors in my DNA. I love working with contractors. Like, I, fantastic. Um, you get to, you know, hang out with people who do things that are completely different from you, like just talking to a photographer or a composer or something like that. I love doing that. So what would be the quick one, two, three step if I had no idea? Right. Uh, and Larry hypothetically have no idea what to do with a contractor. Like what are the things that we must cover our bases here? Like when we are hiring uh, people to do some well, there, contractual work. I think there are like three, there are like a few steps involved first sort of like what have a clear idea of what you need and what the job is before you start looking like don't have a contractor figure out the work for you. Um, that will just get expensive and you won't get the thing that you're looking for. Um, and then sort of that will drive your selection process and mm. really invaluable to just have a network, even if it's just a couple of people that you can talk to or um, sort of follow along the social media or like where they, who they talk to, what they work with. I mean, our artist that we still work with and he's most of our art now um we found because a friend of ours had tweeted about his work um and so we sort of followed him for a while um and just sort of follow other contractors follow artists follow um audio people follow designers follow just sort of get to know who's out there in your network um mm -hmm. and then there's the comes to writing actually writing the contract um and it's one of those things unless you I've done it for a long time, like I have, I would really recommend talking to a lawyer, at least for your first few of them. Mm -hmm. It's expensive, but it can save you a lot of expense down the road, just to make sure that you get the contract right. In the U.S., there are a lot of specific, especially around copyrights and assignments and uh, workplace law, especially if you're in California, um, that you have to make sure that you get just right in, so that like, Later on, if you're dealing with a publisher or something like that, they want to make sure that all of those ducks are in a row and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, first decide what work you're going to need and like what's have a good scope of work done in your head. Uh, find the right people for your network and then make sure that you have all of the um, <clears throat> legal stuff knocked down and locked down correctly. Um, and for, for the first game, uh, we sort of tried to find uh, people for our network, but our network wasn't uh, sort of developed enough no. yet. We, we did some reaching out through the network, but uh, we also did just a lot of uh, sort of cold calls. Like, mm -hmm. hey, this person does cool stuff. You want to work on something? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you yeah, know, the response rate from that is going to be very low. Uh, mm -hmm. You just need to find one person who's awesome, and uh, then you don't have to. <laughs> we, found, yeah. we, found, we found a fantastic contractor that helped us with our PR and marketing for 1849. Yeah. Sort of. Mm -hmm. That was a recommendation. That was a recommendation. And um, so yeah, just sort of work your work, work your network to find the right people. 
and more about the business side of things like um did you guys have a lot of experience in that as well just setting up a company and no, none. <laughs> so how was that? How was that process? Because that was probably one of those like eh, five weeks type of planning, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's been like four years, and it's still like we still don't know what we're doing. <laughs> so, so are are you thinking in terms of specifically like the detail of like LLC formation kind of stuff, or are you yeah, just the beginning of it, and then the, the maintaining of it. Um, in general, yeah. yeah. So I think the uh, the sort of background for that came from just asking an accountant, mm. working with an accountant just for taxes, and just asking him. So you know, I'm thinking of doing this. What do you recommend? And of of course, being an accountant, he knows. You know, like, hey, I have this uh, acquaintance. He does incorporation. Let me let me give you his number. Right? And mm. I go and talk to him. And uh, the long story short. Uh, there's a lot of different ways to do incorporation and so on. And uh, some, basically, uh, law firms will uh, encourage you to use lawyers. Uh, uh, online services will encourage you to use online services. Yeah. Uh, there's, um, <laughs> right? And it's like, right, right? <laughs> and, and there's drawbacks to both. I mean, lawyers are great, but uh, they, the costs add up. Um, we were lucky to find through my accountant, we found somebody who specializes in incorporation and he does it real cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And uh, he's like, all right, so this, this is a good guy. Uh, he sort of has um, basically these kinds of, not quite templates, but fairly standardized things. Uh, also, we didn't have any kind of uh, um, complicated setup. Like if you have a company that needs to, that, that, that's going to pursue funding, then you have to worry about you know, ownership and shares and stuff like that. We didn't want to do that. We just want to do it. The, the most straightforward LLC that's owned by two people. How do we do that? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> no shares, none of the like you know, Silicon Valley stuff, uh, none of the startup stuff, um, right? Because that that gets that gets complicated and it gets expensive. Yeah, we we wanted to make games, not play startup. Right. Sorry. And because we had because we put constraints on that like that, we were able to get it really cheap and uh that was that was good and that's just like yeah and then you find an accountant uh to help you with the books uh and again being indie uh you learn to do everything yourself mm-hmm. except for the actual like end of the year filing and so on because uh, you have to right because if you, if you pay somebody to like keep track of your uh, bookkeeping then you, that it costs you so we, we just i was just learning a lot <laughs> doing everything so when I watched your YouTube video and you were kind of talking about like some of the methods of getting the word out there about your game, you were saying like, if you're not going to spend money on Facebook, Facebook virality is gone. It's a waste of time. Whereas I'm assuming that was a surprise to you initially. You're like, yeah, there's a, a billion and like 1.2 billion people on Facebook. Of course, we're going to do like Facebook shouts for free, right? Yeah. Were you surprised in any way from like other things that you didn't expect to be as true as they became as far as the marketing for your games went? Like, oh, uh, for people who probably didn't watch YouTube, like you also mentioned, like Reddit was a risk. Uh, was there anything else that was like, hey, you know, after doing it the first time, these are like the top three do's and don'ts of marketing your your game mm-hmm. that I think you could talk about? Advertising, I think for us, was sort of a waste of money and effort. Um, I don't know if we just didn't spend enough. Like, I think there's a sort of critical mass that you have to spend for advertising. Like, you have to be willing to, like, 
doubled down on the advertising. Um, but yeah, the virality on Facebook and Twitter was surprisingly terrible. Um, hmm. Like, especially since Rob worked, Rob worked at Facebook and they or yeah. at Zynga, and they sort of you know made all their money from virality on Facebook. So we thought, yeah, that's how it works. This is how it works, but it, it's not yeah. when you're small. Um, right, right. What one when you're small, and two, that, that was around the time when Facebook started clamping down. That time, it it was just the turning point when it used to be possible for a corporate page to go and uh, you know just start putting out uh, updates and so on, and whoever uh, subscribed to that feed would see that in their own feed, and then they started clamping down on that, doing sort of adaptive filtering. Uh, so that people would see more of their friends' updates and not so much of the pages' updates, like corporate pages, mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, but then the way to break through that would, was uh, you could have, you, you could still pay Facebook to, to get your pages promoted, right? And basically, turn your turn your posts into advertising. Yeah. Uh, so we right. So we did the obvious thing of all right, let's set up a Facebook page. Uh, let's start posting screenshots and, and all that stuff, right? Hoping that people will see it, and then you get the analytics from Facebook. And two people saw your post. <laughs> you have however many likes, and yeah. nobody saw. Yeah. So... <laughs> the, that Facebook math starts to bother me. It's like, oh, I've got yeah, six thousand impressions yeah. to click. Like, what? What is an impression? Yeah, I f yeah, I feel like some. Sometimes I, I've done a couple of those runs, and it's 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 questionable. It's like, who who are these guys? Because some of it feel like made up, right? Yeah. Like it's like these are made up profiles that are. I don't and know how it works, know. but it just feels yeah, right. Yeah. You never know what kind of uh, maybe uh, uh, fake uh, accounts are are sort of like clicking through or whatever. Yeah. Not, not. It's and farm. I mean, right? Yeah. I think if we. I think there is a way to make that work if you spend uh, enough money to sort of discover who the audience is that responds to your posts and how to structure posts to make them appealing to them. Uh, but we just never spend the time and money on them. Mm -hmm. We bailed early. Yeah, I mean, I think for, for us, like some of the learnings, um, I don't know how applicable they're going to be going forward because I mean, it's one of those things where if it works now, I don't know if it's going to work next year. Yeah. Like for, for, for Project High Rise, we got a lot of traction from YouTubing and streaming before release. Um, and that was great, and we got a lot of pickup from that. But I'm not going to necessarily plan on that occurring for our next game because I have no idea if that'll be a thing that comes time to release it. Um, like, which wasn't a thing when we put out 1849. And it was a big deal when we put out Project High Rise. So it's like it's really hard to sort of plan given the way that these channels are always changing and evolving. Um, but there was, there was another interesting thing, sort of the, the witnessing the change in media power structure. Mm -hmm. 1849, we spent a lot of effort putting uh, sort of the like traditional press, uh, printed press, big blogs, small blogs, and those you know those those useful, uh, but what we saw with Project High Rise was that we got much more interest uh, based on people making YouTube videos, yeah. especially specialized <clears throat> YouTube videos, uh, not not the sort of like uh, generalists, like you know whether it's uh, PewDiePie or somebody. So sort of like pe not not people who make these uh, sort of very like, who who try different things and have a very broad audience, but people who make very specialist like 
there's these guys and, and you know, men and women who do, let's say, simulation games or strategy mm -hmm. games or uh, like you know, forex uh, sort of empire building games, and they build their audience that's interested in that, and they listen to them not for the jokes, not for the media personality, but to get actual like interesting information about the games. Mm -hmm. And these were the people who uh, we. Uh, who did not really exist as such when we were making 1849, mm. that sort of appeared in the two two year window of time, or at least got popular, right? I mean, some some of them are who were already doing uh, stuff. But the and I was like, all right, that's that's a very interesting development. It's uh, um, you put a uh, you send somebody a key to play your game. Maybe they won't play it. Maybe they will. If they play it, they might have an audience such that you know, hundred thousand people. Will learn about your game, and that's the kind of coverage you can't really get from uh, blogs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that's that's fascinating. Uh, we had no, basically, we had no idea that YouTubers had become such a, a huge part of the community, and they had commended such huge audiences. Yeah. What, what's interesting, what you're saying too, is it's not not even that long ago. You know, we had a developer on Firewatch, and you know, PewDiePie covered their thing, and the it's kind of like the facebook impression you're like yeah he had a huge audience that watched the playthrough of the first hour but none of that really converted into actual purchasers yeah and like you said it was just a general audience you know they're in it for other reasons so it's very broad but uh, uh what you just said was makes a lot of sense like having someone who built a community who are hardcore for that very particular and specialized in, in that thing that you guys are building uh, will benefit you a lot more because these are more hardcore and serious. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like we, we knew that. Uh, so we, we we make games like for very specific audiences, right? Our mm -hmm. our games are not mass market, and that was that was one of the deliberate uh, decisions. When we were saying. We're not going to make mass market games. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, the uh, this. The, it's sort of look at it from the perspective of like our players are out there. They just don't know about our game. <laughs> yeah, like we had Total Biscuit played Project High Rise, and he was like, "Eh, it's okay." Yeah. Um, and we didn't we didn't really get a bump from that or anything like that. But when we had some more specialist YouTubers playing it, like we saw a bump. Like there was definitely a correlation between their videos and our sales. Like Total Biscuit, I don't think so. But people right. watch Total Biscuit for Total Biscuit, not for his games. Exactly. Well, gentlemen. You know, I too am a game designer and I have a game that I've designed that we play on this podcast that I'd like to invite you guys to play. It's called The Fast Five. How it works is I'm going to actually ask you both five rapid fire questions and we're going to need back five rapid fire answers. Are you guys ready to play? I'm afraid already. Oh, good. <laughs> good. That's the perfect answer. <laughs> let's uh, let's agree to an answer order first so that uh, you guys don't just blurt over each other. Can we uh, maybe Matt, you want to go first? I'll go first. All right, cool. So I'll ask the question and then you both can answer. But just Matt, you answer first. OK. OK. All right, here we go. The fast five. Question number one. What's your favorite food to eat while working late on games? Uh, pizza. All right. Um, <laughs> I'm so mad at this. <laughs> favorite, favorite crunch food. The uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think pizza is the thing that I should. Okay, <laughs> pizza is a clear winner. Question number two: What is the worst part about working on the simulation genre? <laughs> How much time do you have? <laughs> Podcast episode two with you guys is what that sounds like. B, why did it do that problem? Like, you think you understand the systems, but then it does something completely random, and you can't figure out why. Mm. Yeah, that's a, uh, especially for simulation. That could be tough. Uh, from my perspective, I think it's the fact that you have to stand up a lot of systems in order to make anything work. Mm. Uh, mm. So you you sort of spend eighty percent of your dev time in just like in darkness. You have no idea what's going on. You put it all together, and all sort of like it, 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 everything comes together late in the process, and that's scary. Mm. That's a good one, actually. I really like that answer. Question number three. <laughs> Who is your favorite other indie game developer? Um, what's it? Uh, what's his name? He made Banished. Um, I just blanked on his name. Let's see if I can Google Let's... it real quick. From Shining Rock Software. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I love ba I, I, I love Banished. I guess that's as, that's as close as we can get uh, next. Yeah, his name his, his name will come back to me the minute that we're done with the podcast. <laughs> It'll be like the last thing to say. <laughs> uh, okay. I'm, I'm gonna give a shout out to uh, Taron Adams of War Fortress. Oh yeah, nice. masterpiece. I didn't say that because I knew you would. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the next question is: What's the last video game that you beat? That I beat. That you beat. Uh, Civ Five. Start to finish. Yeah. Civ Five. Oh damn. Okay. Yeah. Man, it's it's been a very long time since I've actually finished the game. Um, the I don't remember. I mean, I always just abandon them, right? It's like <laughs> <laughs> my my Steam library is just full of these sort of unfinished things that I might come back to later. Um, so the answer is. It's been so long ago that I don't remember, so I think the answer is none. <laughs> All right, that, that's fine. Okay, very last question for you both. If only one simulation game could get a perfect score from you, which game would that be? Um, I would probably give that one to Civilization V. Civ V, clean it up tonight. It is <laughs> my, I have an embarrassing number of hours on Civ 5. It's, yeah, I, we're pushing 2,500. Good God. Holy shucks. <laughs> That's a lot of time. <laughs> I love that game. For me, uh, I'm going to say the original SimCity from 89, just because oh. it packed so much complexity and so much interesting stuff into a teeny, tiny, tiny footprint. Yeah, amen. SimCity was a the big starter for me. I think SimCity 2000 was when I really got into simulation, but SimCity yeah. I then played after 2000, and even that was really good. And then SimCity 4, especially with the Rush Hour expansion, that was amazing. Yeah. Oh, that, that entire series, I mean, they just kept making it better and better. See, it's I, I really like this uh, this question segment because I often ask game developers about other game developers, and it's not even a hate or like you know show off thing, but it's just good to kind of share the kudos, you know. So yeah. it's always cool to hear what they have to say about other people's products.
and we're all inspired by other people and we all play each other's games and we're like oh this is great and then right. we steal their design ideas <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's like, Sin civilization, our new game. <laughs> it's, it's always like that, that sort of feeling of the, the um, I don't know, what would you call it, like the professional jealousy or something like that. You see something mm -hmm. done really well and you're like, oh man, I wish I had done this. Why didn't I do this? <laughs> this is That's my whole career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, it's both fun to play a lot of other games and it's also like refreshing for you. Amen, guys. Thanks for playing. <laughs> you all have passed uh, with pretty decent time for doing it tandem. So I must say that is that is impressive work, gentlemen. Thank you. <laughs> so you guys are at a point. Um, so we were talking about before how, you know, uh, building your community uh, and then uh, the idea of partnering up with other people who have a really hardcore community that uh, would appeal to your would be appealing to your game so <clears throat> after all that process you guys have a good game now and you have you know a conversation going in the press about it now you're ready to put it out there in either early access or uh, on a digital platform so naturally as a developer you think of steam Mm -hmm. But Steam themselves have realized their own issues about <laughs> just too many, too many things to look at, right? Mm -hmm. So what was what was the uh, process with that? For the release, the release, yeah. Um, <clears throat> we considered early access. We we're, we're very sure. Yeah, we thought about for for Project Tyrus in particular. We thought about early access. We did do early access for eighteen forty nine. When we were sort of like systems complete, but we're still running a lot of content. So it was basically like pushing out a bunch of scenarios and campaigns and sandbox stuff and asking players, is that any good? And then they would say no. And then we would fix it. Um, it was very useful. It was very useful. Um, but then for release for Project High Rise, um, we sort of settled on a um, traditional release. Like it's going to come out September 8th, and that will be the game. And then we'll support it afterwards. Um, Really, you like early access once upon a time was sort of newsworthy in itself, and people would cover your game as you release new things and would get updated. And um, now, not so much. Like, there's so many early access games out there. Um, the press will cover your early access, and then when you actually do the release, they'll be like, Oh, it released and move on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we basically talked to a bunch of people, and the advice or the sort of feedback we got was that, um, you know, it, it used to be more the case that, like back in 2013, 2012, that you could do Kickstarter or early access, and that, would, that, that by itself was a media event, like you would get covered, and then when you release the game, uh, it would reset, and like you would, you, you could reach out to us and, uh, for coverage and so on. But more towards 15, 16, it was no longer the case. Uh, there were so many Kickstarters and early access games that you basically got one launch. Mm -hmm. And you got to decide, is it the early access launch or is it the full launch? And, you, mm -hmm. uh, and that sort of changes your thing. So we, we started looking at this going, well, we did benefit from early access. Yeah. Uh, but it's probably better to just save, <laughs> save up the, prop, the, uh, the gunpowder, as it were. Go out with a bang um, uh, with, the, with the full game. 
Uh, it was it was a gamble for sure. Um, <laughs> it sounds like doing the early access for your first game is not such a bad idea because you, you are learning the whole process. That's true, yes. Yeah, the second game sounds like you guys are more confident in your yeah, product. And, and, yeah, and we, we, we knew how to build an audience uh, without early access. Kind of thing. Mm-hmm. We worked with a publisher who also uh, knew how to build audience. Or, you know, they, they, they had an audience and so on. So the, the benefits of early access were not quite as clear in this, in, for the second I mean, game. We didn't have a game that would necessarily benefit from early access. Like we weren't, mm-hmm. build, we weren't building a multiplayer game where you use early access to sort of build up your player pool so that when you launch, you have a, an existing player pool of people in your multiplayer game. So like, and there are other reasons to do early access, but like none of them were really compelling for the game that we were making. Mm-hmm. Did you guys end up Using Steam as well, right? Uh, oh, yeah, we launched on like Steam is the thousand pound gorilla. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we we launched we, we did we, we did launch on Steam. Um, it's a PC map game, so we launched on Steam. Uh, I'm tempted to say it was Google Games immediate, or it was a little bit later. Google Games was a launch platform. Yeah. So yeah, and you know it's 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 a PC map game. It's it's not a console game, so we didn't we didn't have to worry about. It. Consoles or something like yeah. that. For 1849, we did a simultaneous launch on PC and mobile, on iOS and Android, because it was a much sort of a much smaller game. It was more uh, casually. It wasn't a casual game. It was sort of more um, sort of like. Yeah, don't don't do that. <laughs> oh yeah, right. That's right. Yeah, don't. <laughs> the simultaneous PC and mobile launch was uh, uh, something. That... <laughs> I will yeah, stay clear. Don't, just don't. <laughs> it wasn't even a technical issue. It was technically fine. It was better up. Like our communications wasn't good. We weren't positioning mm-hmm. ourselves, and uh, the uh, we thought that there would be some kind of positive feedback from having uh, from being on multiple platforms the way you do with Xbox and PS and uh, and, and PC. But mobile is, is is a very different thing. Mobile players did not hear about the PC game. Did not you know care? Right, they did not care. Like they 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 found the game through their own channels to the App Store. Mm-hmm. Uh, word of mouth kind of thing. And PC players responded very negatively. Uh, not not many. Like, but there was a very small but very vocal minority who responded to this game being on mobile as well as oh, it's just a mobile port, and therefore. Uh, we're gonna discount it completely. Uh, it's like, well, yeah. There was no, there was the upside that we thought would be there for a simultaneous PC mobile release was not. Yeah. So that was that was an interesting lesson to learn, right? That there that there is uh, that there are PC players who are very vocal about these kinds of mobile ports coming onto PC, and I think maybe it's a it's a matter of, you know, players got burnt by mobile games, you know, clicker games, whatever coming onto PC, and that they don't like. Um, ours wasn't that, right? Ours was an actual like. There's a little city builder sim where you have to worry about the economy and you have to. You know, it's it, it's not a click and wait game. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like an old school uh, sort of PC strategy game. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, players just you know didn't care. Didn't care, right? <laughs> they like they saw oh it came out on mobile, it looks like a mobile game. 
<laughs> customers these days they just have this like swami sixth sense where they just pick up on one little thing and they just assume Man. the rest yeah. and they just know that they're right it's 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 uncanny <laughs> these abilities that these guys have yeah and i i wish like if we had known that this would happen we would have structured our communications differently because i think you can get around it i think if we had mm different trailers, different screenshots, like things that emphasize the sort of old school PC nature of the game. From the beginning, we would have gotten around this, mm -hmm. but we didn't know what we were doing. So we just reused the same screenshots, we reused the same video on all platforms. Yeah. And that just muddled the waters. Mm -hmm. but, yeah, okay. Lesson learned. Yeah. yeah. That's probably what did it, I would imagine. <laughs> this logo before, this is a port. Yeah, yeah, right. Zero out of ten. And and you know, going going way <laughs> zero, yeah, right. Uh, and going way back to like uh, the idea that uh, your first game will sort of be like you, you're. It's the thing that you're learning on. Um, mm -hmm. It's like for for the indie game, maybe maybe don't make the game you dream about making for your first game. Not because you can't. Not because you. Right, but because you're going to run into these weird things like you don't know how to deal with audience differences across multiple platforms because you've never done this before. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> don't, yeah, don't take the game that you've always wanted to make and put it out there because it might fail for completely unrelated reasons that are not related to the game but are related to your own inexperience as a uh, publisher or as a, you know, somebody participating in the marketplace. Fair enough. So was there a method that you guys uh, applied um, for pricing your game? Because that seems to be a th pretty important topic, but uh, I feel normally developers don't really talk about that process either. Uh, we did a lot of, you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of comps, like looking at what players seem to think the value prop for other games like yours is. Um, I.e. look at what, what uh, other people are doing and steal their ideas. Yeah. Um, no. This <laughs> <laughs> is just game development. And not Don't be shy. Don't be shy. It's okay. <laughs> but yeah, sort of like there's there's a couple of things to consider. Like what are what are the value propositions for um players? Like what do they think is a twenty dollar game? Like what are they what are they buying a lot of? Like go on Steam Spy and see like what are the twenty dollar games and is your game of a similar size? Mm -hmm. uh, complexity and heft. Um, and the other thing is, I think a lot of uh, indie devs underprice their games a little bit. They don't mm -hmm. put them, give them as much value as they should, which has consequences because that sort of affects the targeting for the rest of us. Um, mm -hmm. Players think, well, City Skylines was only $30 and your game isn't as good as City Skylines. And like, I don't mm -hmm. know, players have a weird entitlement sometimes when it comes to pricing and stuff like that. And also, you need to be able to discount your game in sales. Like, you make a lot of um, your, a, a, long, a lot of your long tail from platform sales. And if you're pricing your game below where it should be, and then you make it 75% off, you're going to make a lot of your long tail revenue. That's going to be an issue. So, I mean, you have to sort of look at not only where it's going to be when you launch the game compared to the other games that are out there, but over the next three or four years when you're running, you know, 65, 75%, 85% off sales, like your game is suddenly 89 cents, like you're not going to make a lot of money. That because you went 85%, 75% off, 
which is what you need to do to get noticed during those sales. So, like I think, plan for the pricing and the comps currently, but also keep the long view in mind for how you're gonna price over the lifetime of your product. Just one more question, well, a couple more. For the mobile market, right? Um, the audience and the store scares me. Uh, <laughs> just because it, this doesn't seem to be, unless you have like your own uh, uh, community going into the market, there's, it feels like there's no chance for you ever being um, found. So were there things that you guys did that, um, that helped with getting featured and, and all that stuff to, yeah. to the, so, uh, to yeah, the markets? So we, we looked at, uh, sort of like, uh, there have been some sort of third party studies of why, of how players find games on, on mobile. Um, and the sort of overwhelming two factors are, um, they find it on the store, you know, whether it's because it's featured or because they're looking for a, a strategy game and it's in the strategy section or whatever. So, like, one, it's the store itself. Two, it's the word of mouth. And then three is websites and so on, which I don't think it's quite the same way in in PC world. Uh, like, YouTubers are much more important for PC games versus for, like, mobile games. It's it's not the case. Mm -hmm. um, so we, yeah, so we um, wanted to get featured, obviously. Uh, and we did also, you know, we reached out to uh, various mobile uh, websites that, you know, like, uh, uh, what was it, Pocket, Pocket Tactics? No, Pocket Gamer. Oh, um, sorry. Yes. Uh, and, and, and so on. Uh, and we, we got nice coverage from that. But just looking from uh, external studies, I think the main driver for people is, is the store and featuring. Um, mm. So for featuring, we did a contract with a, um, a biz dev person, basically, to go and represent us to Apple and to Google uh, as a potential for featuring. Uh, and we did get featured. Mm -hmm. so it was the, uh, like around the launch week. I don't think it was the launch day, but yeah. Uh, so that was very good. Nice. I mean, and it's one of those things featuring is like, yeah, we got featured, but we were a premium game, so. Well, that was surprising, right? Because the uh, the benefits of featuring are much higher for free to play. Mm -hmm. Barriers to purchase. Versus like, hey, here's a $5 uh, premium game that's being featured. That makes many more, that makes people pause and think much more. Well, and then you get featured and then you fall off right away because you don't have the trajectory to keep yourself up there. Like, you know. Yeah, the mobile market is 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 a big scary thing, and um, we don't quite know how to deal yeah. with it. So, in terms of building your audience, I think we're we're doing it slightly different for projects for going forward. Basically, um, the uh, mobile. I mean, mobile is still appealing, right? Like, I mm. I like playing on tablets, <laughs> but I think you have to bring your own, your own audience. Maybe it means starting on the PC and, and then doing mobile or starting on console and then doing mobile or um, some other way of like creating awareness first and then coming on mobile instead of instead of uh, launching on mobile. Yeah, first. I, I, I don't think you can build an, I don't think you can build an audience on mobile anymore. Right. Damn. That's sad. <laughs>
I think it, I think there's just too many games. Like, there's some terrifying number, like a thousand games come out on Android or iOS every day or something like that. It's yeah. just, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. You would think. I mean, here's a golden idea. Like, you would think there would be more YouTubers covering these mobile games because I. Once in a while, I see a game that I've never heard of, and it's like, man, this looks really cool on mobile, and I wish I had known about it, which is probably the most cases in mobile market. But, you know, no YouTubers or no way of knowing. Or It's weird, right? You would think that that's something that someone would cover because I would find that helpful. It's like, oh, my God, I, I, I kind of want to navigate this week on what's hot. Can someone play it real quick so I can watch and so I can find find a game I suspect, on, on, on the train, yeah. I suspect that the enthusiast community uh, for mobile games is a much smaller percentage of the community overall. On mobile than it is on PC, right? Like on, on, on PC, the people who will look at the YouTube videos of games are going to be the enthusiasts. Hey, right. I'm looking for a new simulation game. Uh, what's out there? And, you know, I will do that too. <laughs> I will look right. at like, hey, what are, what, are, you know, what are some of my favorite YouTubers doing? Oh, there's a new right. game. I gotta check it out. But on mobile, it's I, it feels much more. Um, um, opportunity based, right? It's much more opportunistic. The uh, I'm I'm on the train. I've got a, a two-hour plane flight or something like that. I'm just gonna download something from the app store. Mm-hmm. Like the the enthusiasts aren't there because the gameplay on mobile, I don't think is quite like that. Plus, the, the, the store, dis- the, the discoverability on stores on mobile is horrendous. Mm-hmm. Like, they don't do a very good job of surfacing new things you might like based on your play and stuff like that. But not the way that, like, Steam or GOG or other platforms do a much better job of saying, but you're this kind of player, here's game, the game. Yeah. And I think that's just a consequence of the volume. Volume and also the the different play styles. Yeah, right? like there's there's much more interesting. Pick up and, and and leave aside kind of games. So I have one last question for the evening for you guys. Right? So you guys have two projects under your belt. Right? I'm assuming you guys are doing your third right now. Um, so what advice would you give for your uh? From Project High Rise team to your eighteen forty nine team that you guys have learned. That's a good one. That's a good one. Um, we sort of had talked about before. Um, you know, when players actually have your the game in your hands and um, they're playing it, and then they give you a lot of feedback. I think for 1849, we didn't necessarily do a... And it was different then, too. We didn't do a good job of keeping the game alive after launch, I don't think. I think with Project High Rise, we learned a lot. Like, we did, like, after launch, like, weekly content updates that were pretty significant and, like, then bigger content updates that were just free. We just started, like, adding things to the game. Um, I would say that my big... My piece of advice is don't let release be the end of your game development. And I have a slightly different comment uh, because the the thing we we thought we knew how to do that we learned that we were terrible at is marketing. Like, just just 
finding the audience and building the audience and like like we thought we knew how to do this because we've seen the games being marketed to us all <laughs> oh, right like mentioned on on twitter and mentioned here and or whatever that's like actually actually trying to do this is hard and uh it's takes a lot of time and uh, uh for the second game we've uh uh, we started working with a publisher who could do a lot of this much better than we could, yeah. and we benefited greatly from it. Now, this might not be applicable to the 1849 team because the 1849, the 1849 team was brand new and didn't have any games under its belt, so uh -huh. finding a publisher would have been much harder for them. Uh -huh. It was much harder. Like, yeah. we, we did talk with publishers, and it was those were very different conversations. Um, but uh, the like. The difficulty of self-publishing was something we greatly underestimated. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry to hear that you underestimated the self-publishing, but I definitely encourage anyone out there to who has listened to this podcast to take heed of the good advice, because there were some things that I actually learned from listening to you guys about the approach to marketing and some of the things that didn't work out that uh, I won't do. So thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> But with that said, gentlemen, we have come to the end of the podcast. Uh, I know we all had a great time. We shared a lot of laughs, but I promised you a gift when we started, which was Brandon and I are going to shut the hell up and let you guys talk directly to the audience. And you can, you know, promote, shout out or raise awareness or draw attention to something that you're really excited about or just something that you think the people need to know exists. So without further ado, the floor is yours. Thanks. I think we would just want to say we talked a lot about our previous game, our first game, 1849, and our current game is out there. It's called Project High Rise, and it's on Steam um, and GOG and other platforms, so go check it out. And also stay tuned because we're going to have some interesting news about Project High Rise in the not-too-distant future that we'll be sharing with everyone, so pay attention there. And also, uh, if you um, have some spare change that you want to used to support a good cause. There's a lot of bad things happening in Northern California and Southern California right now. So um, we'll help people whose houses have burned down. Yeah, amen. Well, gentlemen, thank you for being so nice and uh, joining our podcast tonight. Larry Charles, say goodnight. This is Brandon Fab. See you guys next week. Thank you very much for having us. Take care. If you enjoyed this podcast and you want to stay in touch or continue to follow our developments, then you need to go to facebook.com forward slash game dev unchained and drop a like and stay in touch. You can also get the direct feed for this podcast on soundcloud.com forward slash game dev unchained.